Good morning. Uh, If you would join me briefly in a short prayer. Lord, as we come to your word, encourage us to have minds that seek to understand it, hearts that seek to trust it, and give us the strength to obey it. Amen. I'm going to focus on the First Corinthians passage, although you will see the relevance of the Gospel reading to this morning's theme as well. We're continuing our exploration of the Nicene Creed, and my assignment is to cover the affirmation that we believe in Jesus, risen, ascended, and glorified. Now, the Nicene Creed states that we believe in Jesus Christ, who having been crucified under Pontius Pilate, rose again, ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory. And that together with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit is to be worshipped and glorified. In full realisation of the seriousness of, of bearing false witness about God, in 1 Corinthians 15.15, 15, Paul effectively testifies on oath that God raised Christ from the dead. Indeed, as theologian Jonathan Kendall reports, that numerous individuals, including Jesus' closest disciples, had experiences subsequent to the crucifixion that led them to conclude that Jesus had been resurrected from the dead is a fact accepted by essentially all New Testament scholars, even those who are most sceptical of Christianity. What you make of the abundant historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus will mainly depend upon the assumptions and attitudes that you bring with you into the investigation of that evidence. As for Paul, it's clear that he'd been firmly convinced, against his former scepticism, of course, that Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. By using this language of the first fruits of harvest, Paul indicates that it is the destiny of those who place themselves in Christ to recapitulate his death and resurrection. For as in Adam, the first type of humanity, all die, so in Christ the second type of humanity, all will be made alive, but each in turn. Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. It's verses 22 and 23. Moreover, as Paul says in Romans 6, 4, we were buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. In other words, our baptism into Christ isn't just a gateway 
to a forgiveness-based relationship with God and to a resurrected life in the new heavens and earth to come, but to a new way of living in Christ to the glory of the Father here and now. Just when they got their heads around Jesus' resurrection, the disciples had to deal with his ascension, an event wherein Jesus miraculously signified to the disciples that he would no longer meet with them physically in this world. This event is narrated twice by Luke, in Luke 24 and in Acts 1, and it's also mentioned in John 20:17 and in 1 Timothy 3:16 thereby passing an important historical test of multiple independent witnesses that an event happened that Jesus is obscured by a cloud before he vanishes recalls the presence of God manifested as a cloud at the transfiguration of Christ, reported in Luke 9, where the disciples see the glorious splendor of Moses and Elijah and the glory of Jesus before, Luke reports, a cloud appeared and covered them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. Well, this time, when the cloud disappears, the disciples find that they were alone. Christian philosopher Stephen T. Davis, commenting on the ascension, says this, Although I accept Luke's account of the ascension of Jesus as trustworthy, I see the event primarily as a symbolic act performed for the sake of the disciples. By means of it, God showed them that Jesus was henceforth to be apart from them in space and time. The ascension of Jesus was visibly symbolized for the disciples by a change of location. And no sooner had the disciples come to term with Jesus' resurrection and ascension then they had to get to grips with the fact that Jesus had left them with a mission. On the one hand, their mission is not to restore the kingdom of Israel as they had hoped up until the very last. In other words, their job doesn't involve kicking Roman butt, which is what they had hoped for. But on the other hand, although they know that Jesus will one day return... They're not to kick back and wait for God to put the worlds to right. They haven't just been assigned to God's cheerleading squad so that they can let go and let God and have a good praise session. Rather, with the backing of the Holy Spirit, their mission, their, their new way of life in Christ is to expand the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, by bearing witness to Jesus in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. 
As the Westminster Shorter Catechism very famously expresses the matter, our chief end as humans is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Or as Paul writes earlier in 1 Corinthians, you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Whatever you do, do everything for God's glory. What does it mean for us to glorify God? The Greek word that we translate as glory is doxa. Doxa referred to a person's good reputation in the sense of their their splendor, their honor. When Paul writes of the eternal weight of glory in 2 Corinthians 4-7, He's actually making a pun on the Hebrew word for glory, which is kabod, whose primary meaning is to be heavy. But which also means a range of things such as wealth, magnificence, honour, even brightness. Indeed, kabod is often used figuratively, whether in a negative sense, such as being heavy with sin, or in a positive sense, as in the the weightiness of an impressive person worthy of respect. Now, whereas the biblical language of holiness expresses God's separateness from creation, his transcendence or being beyond creation, The language of God's glory focuses upon his imminence, his being present to the creation. His being present to everywhere by his knowledge and by his sustaining power. Now both aspects are seen in Isaiah's vision of angels in the temple calling out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. His glory fills the whole earth. See in Isaiah 6, 3. In the Bible, we sometimes find God specifically manifesting his glory in events such as storms and earthquakes. Have a look at Exodus 13, 21. There's a sense in which such awesome natural events both express and guard God's transcendence, simultaneously revealing and concealing his presence. But in the New Testament, the glory of God is revealed in Jesus. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1.14. Hebrews describes Christ as the reflection of God's glory. Hebrews 1.3. For Paul, the glory of Christ is likewise a manifestation of the glory of God the Father. And since the church is the earthly body of Christ post the ascension, it follows that the church 
also reveals the glory of God. Just as Christ was raised from the dead, says Paul in Romans 6.4, we too may live a new life. This new life in the kingdom of heaven is lived through our glorious Lord Jesus Christ for the glory of the Father. So how do we glorify God? Dallas Willard explains that our kingdom is simply the range of our effective will. Your kingdom is the range of your effective will. And Christians live to extend the range of God's effective will over every sphere of reality within our influence, making his rule and reality more transparently imminent within his world. By living for the kingdom of heaven on earth, by daily offering ourselves as living sacrifices, we can, if you like, solidify the glory of God in our lives, in our community, in our culture, as we are transformed by the adoption of true assumptions about reality, beautiful attitudes towards things, and good actions in the world. For as we focus our lives upon the Lord's glory, we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. 2 Corinthians 3.18 Thus Paul prays that the love of Christians, he says, may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that they may be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That's in Philippians chapter 1. Or as Jesus says in John, it's time, chapter 15, verse 8, this is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Amen.